Cadence, Episode 3, Velodrome. Once in a very different time, my sister was safe. Not only was she alive, she was living. The last time I saw her was over a year ago. She and her girlfriend were traveling an improvised road trip. They got to Washington and showed up at my door, unannounced. Sierra was beautiful. Dark chestnut skin with golden hair. Sunlight seemed to float around her. I suppose she's still beautiful, somewhere. It took me longer than I thought to notice the pictures she was in. All around the house, Nora had hung photos of us, our parents, or family dog, and every once in a while, you'd see her in the background, smiling at the lens, arm around her, holding hands. I've been trying to contact her, maybe she could help, but so far, I've been hitting brick walls all around. I told myself that the last time I recorded would be the end of this. After what happened to the... It was all too much. I really wanted to leave this town right then and there. I'm stubborn, but even I get a picture of what I'm dealing with when I come across a decapitated deer. The very next day, something happened. I've been processing this, trying to get a grasp on what I saw. I haven't even spoken to the chief about it. I know what happened to Nora. I saw the truth, and it doesn't make any sense. I had packed my bag with everything I had. I placed the microphone in your pillow and I left. Right there in the early hours of the morning, I sped past the perfectly painted houses, still gray in the light before the sun. I left the town and dove into the open highway. There was nothing to follow, there was nothing chasing me. All there was, was a road. One that rolled itself out in front of me, and all I had to do was follow my front wheel. No sight but the horizon. No sound but the chain. It's the quiet moments which always bear the heaviest burdens. After about an hour of pedaling, I thought I had reached a town I stopped by on the way here, and I saw a farmhouse standing lonely in the middle of a wide stretch of crops. Right away, I knew there was something strange about the house. I got that sinking feeling, like when you're on a roller coaster and you can feel the flip of your stomach when you've only just seen the drop that's coming. I heard the soft tones of an unskilled piano player float out through the open door and into the air. I now know that who it was, they were playing for me to blur me in, so I left the bike behind, and I climbed the steps. 
The corridor following the front door was almost a hall. It was a huge open room, all decorated in red. Red carpet, red walls, four red columns holding up the ceiling. And on the far right corner, a little girl playing the piano. Her small fingers could barely make it from note to note without inserting a small silence between each sound. And with her was a woman leaning against one of the columns. She turned to me, asking if I knew anyone there. I said, no. She turned and swiftly climbed the stairs, like water flowing upstream. I followed her, knowing full well that I shouldn't. I caught up with the woman in a room upstairs. She was undressing, but didn't seem to mind that I was there. She wasn't putting on a show for me. Honestly, I don't think she even wanted to do what she was doing. She kept staring at the window, an old, dirty piece of glass which deformed and reshaped the world outside. It almost looked like a picture. Perfect and colorful, but unmoving. The woman presented herself as Melissa and began dressing up again in what I can only describe as a wedding dress. It was long and white, but it wasn't adorned. It wasn't especially beautiful or had a nice cut or masterful making. Instead, what made it into a bridal dress was the way Melissa wore it. The elegance in her movements, the way she readied herself up like it were a ritual. And then that shattered. She asked me for ice chips, saying how hungry she was, her stomach hurting. Kitchen was the only response I got from asking where I could find them. And so I stepped out of the room into the hallway. All the other doors nearby were blocked, but like they were new. The smell of fresh paint drifted through the air, and I could see my reflection walking on all the perfectly polished doorknobs. I made my way down the main staircase and noticed the little girl had stopped playing. She was now sitting on the floor eating a sandwich. I noticed a pool of breadcrumbs and a few drops of mayonnaise on the floor. But on the other end of the room, there was this man. Tall, skinny old man. Banging on the door I came in through. He was giving it all he had. And right then, I realized. I knew that at this point there was nothing to do but tread on ahead. So I turned around and I asked the little girl where the kitchen was. And she took me to this cold, sterile place. It was metal and chrome, much more of a morgue than a kitchen. For the first time, I noticed my footsteps weren't alone. I heard voices, and I peeked in through a door across from the kitchen, the dining room. I was immediately flooded with the sound of boisterous laughter and the image of a large 20-something group eating. They all seemed to be wearing black, like funeral, but they were clearly there for reasons other than a funeral. None of these people are family. Not Melissa, not the girl, no one here. This town is full of families like that, disjointed and distant. No one looks like each other, but they all act the same. I forgot about Melissa for a minute there, but the cold bite of ice brought me back. When I got upstairs, she was laying on her bed, sideways. 
I put the cup in her nightstand and help her to sit up. What is this place? I asked. Home, she said. Or at least what home used to be. She leaned in closer. I've been here for a very long time. But I ain't never seen your sister. I've gone through our whole interaction over and over in my head. And I am sure that I never mentioned you. She laid back down and closed her eyes for a moment. Then she looked at the door. Fix it, she ordered, and then looked at me. Fix it. The smell of something burnt broke above me. I drifted towards the source and it was one of the locked doors. Before I even tried to open it, I felt a heat wave flow from the doorknob. Small trickles of smoke rose up from the top of the door, hovering and pushing up at the ceiling. I tried to kick it, but it wouldn't open. I kept going at it for a while, mixing the thumping of the door to the already overwhelming pool of sounds. The main hall was packed with people and tents. The pristine red was now covered in grimy, tattered fabrics. There were a few small fireplaces here and there. If anything, this place now looked like a refugee camp. At the bottom of the stairs, crying, was the little girl. She sat on the marble floor, dripping it with blood. I ran down and took her up in my arms. When I asked her what happened, she pointed at the man hitting on the door. His hands were now flowing with crimson red blood. The little girl wasn't hurt at all. This wasn't even her blood. I took her to the bathroom to clean her up, and as I shut the door, silence. No more people protesting or banging on wood or clanging metal. I took a towel and cleaned up her face. What's your name? I asked. Leah, she answered in a sweet voice. After everything that happened, I never knew if Leah was her real name or that's just how people called her. She didn't really speak with sentences, often with one-syllable words and nothing else. We left the bathroom until Leah was calm again. I was holding her hand. It was immediately flooded by people, grasping at the walls and banging on the counter. The wallpaper was now being torn apart as we walked through the crowded hallway. Through the open door of the kitchen, I saw it was empty after a horde of people had pillaged the room. Most of the cabinet doors were lying on the floor, empty cans everywhere. And across the hall, in the funeral dining room, I saw the family. But now there was, in fact, a funeral. One of the young men was being put in the fridge to be lowered through a hole in the ground. They broke the wood panels in the floor and dug into the soil below. The smell of damp earth lingered above the crowd as we all moved around. We were all looking for something. We were all needy. I clutched Leah's tiny hand 
as I pushed us away through to the main hall. It was almost impossible to hear what anyone was saying if they were more than three feet away. So I grabbed Leah and I carried her. And then I... I stood there. I had no idea what to do, how to get out, who any of these people were. I stood there and I held Leah. I needed her as much as she needed me. We spent a while being pushed around by the crowd. I wanted to become a part of them. I wanted to be lost, to forget whatever I was feeling. Smoke, deep charcoal black smoke loomed over us. At first, no one seemed to notice but Leah and I. I screamed, I pushed, I warned the people around me, and though everyone seemed to agree, they quickly returned to whatever they were doing. I struggled to make my way to the staircase, climbed a few steps, and hollered. I tried to warn everyone about the smoke, but my cries were drowned out as soon as they left my mouth. And then I remembered Melissa. I'd left her upstairs and I panicked. I let go of Leah and told her to hold on to one of the posts on the staircase. I don't know if things would have ended up differently had I taken her with me. It was hard to breathe upstairs and I made my way to Melissa's room by feeling on the walls. She was on her bed, head thrown back. She looked pale, skinny, her wedding dress stained. I ran to her and I lifted. I carried her out through the hallway. My eyes were tearing up faster than I could stop it. We stumbled a few times but I kept focusing on keeping Melissa safe and away from the smoke. When we got to the thick of it, reached the staircase, Leah was gone. The whole handrail was gone. I saw a group of men tear away the last standing post and take it to a fireplace. Something liquid splattered up to my cheek. I felt it sticky through the filth. Blood. Melissa's blood. She was coughing. I took her to the only empty place I could think of, the kitchen. It was hard taking her through the crowd. People kept grasping at her, ripping her dress, taking scraps with them. The kitchen wasn't as empty as I thought it'd be. There were a few people laying down or just walking around in a daze. I set Melissa down on the metal table and propped her head up with something that used to be a cabinet. She was bleeding. Right, water. I had to get her water. I looked around and saw pipe-dripping droplets. I rummaged through a pile of debris, disturbing the others. I found a cup, dirty and broken, but it would have to do. I cleaned it up with my shirt and ran to collect as much water as I could. But people had come in and gathered around her. She's dead. Let's take her to the others. I looked over my shoulder to see them taking her, carrying her from the arms and legs, her body draping down, neck bent backwards. I screamed at them to stop, try to pull them away, but they pushed back. 
I followed them into the hall, and then I saw the dining room. I heard it first, chanting. I looked in through the door, pushing it wide open. The family was dancing in a circle. In the middle was an old man holding a stick, a post, in his hands. He banged the floor with it and the others would move to the rhythm. It was a cult. And at the top of the post, there was a picture. It was you, Nora. And written in blood over your picture, the words false prophet. That's... That's what broke me. I lost everything I had. I screamed at them to stop and ran. Then I don't remember what happened. The next thing I know, I was standing out in the hall. My hands were bloody and my face was bruised, but I had the post with me, though it was broken now. Didn't have your picture anymore. And I pushed through the crowd and I hit whoever was in my way walking past the groups of people and the smoke and the piles of bodies. And I got to the front door. It had streaks of blood running down. And I began hitting it. I swung the post at it and I used it as a battering ram and I pushed. I have never hit anything the way I hit that door. There was no feeling to it, just visceral violence. And it worked. The door caved out. I stumbled out into the night and crawled to the road. I pressed my forehead to the pavement. I had made it. I turned at the house behind me. Pillars of fire bursted out through the windows and rose up, waving at the stars. But not for long. The house soon began to cave in with loud cracks and booms and groans. After a few minutes, silence. A pile of ash was drifting away, getting picked up by the icy breeze. It's this town. That's what happened to them. This town goes through people like a bulldozer. All of them, they're not dead. They're gone. All the other people like Nora, but not her. They knew who she was, but Nora wasn't with them. Maybe she escaped. Or maybe she found them out like I did. What you did to those people? I swear, if you touched my sister... Nora, she was a smart one. I'm dumb and impulsive, and I will throw myself at you with everything I've got. I will pummel you until there's nothing left, until everyone forgets you used to have a name. My sister found out the truth about you, and you tried to make her stop, but she didn't, and neither will I. You wanted me scared? Good. Job well done, I am scared. But don't forget with fear comes the claw and the tooth and the fight. So go ahead, make me more scared. I dare you.
Cadence is written and produced by Jason Fletcher. The voice of Jason is Jason Fletcher. This episode's music by Ian Sutherland, Haunted Me, My Own Cubic Stone, Kai Engel, and Xenojam. All of it can be found at freemusicarchive.org. For more, follow us on Twitter at CadencePod. Please leave us a rating, it helps a lot. Thank you for listening, and hey, it's warm under your bed.